Blog Talk Radio. Tennis, Mr. Chuck Greasy. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to get in the game. And hello, good morning, and uh, well, it's lunchtime here, but uh, welcome once again to American Tennis. And uh, again, we, we are already in our almost 10 years now in American Tennis. And pretty much I've always started out by saying that we try to speak up, say what needs to be said, and say it in the right way. Hey, anytime you criticize something or someone, two things. Uh, never be personal. Stay professional. Don't be personal. Address issues, not people. And you can pretty much say what you want to say. Uh, and that's – I try to – always teach young people that that you know you need to stand up say those things that need to be said get them on the table uh most people are pretty good about talking about other people but we're not we're not good enough doggone it at addressing issues the way we should and in trying to uh sort some problems out we're waiting around for our leaders also to do a lot of things and you know and I know that our leaders are going in five different directions, and uh, usually they take care of the hot issues right away. And uh, and some of the stuff stays on the back burner, you know. And, uh, you know, it's the old Stephen Covey, if you've seen The Seven Habits, Highly Effective People. I still try to get my players to read that book. It came out in the 80s, Stephen Covey, but he has four things. Uh, you have urgent are not urgent, important, or not important. And the, the, I cannot tell you how it has helped as a coach to talk to my players and then uh, for me over the years to get organized to address urgent and important first, or important and urgent first. Secondly, important but not urgent over those things that are urgent but not important, and then not urgent, not important. It's like free time and those things. But... You know, I, I, I remember so distinctly reading that book, and uh, it helped me so much uh, just plan for teams to do things the long term. I mean, when I had to write my books and uh, do those things, holy cow, was that hard. And uh, a scholar I was not, folks. I, I always tried. I always said uh, I'm a little bit slow. I'm a slow learner, but I'm dang smart after I learn. I do learn eventually, and I remember most things. But that Stephen Covey book, Seven Habits for Highly Effective People, is still darn good. And and so do the things that are important but not urgent, and our world will be a heck of a lot better. Better than the urgent, not important, and where we're always putting, putting up little fires and big fires at the end. So uh, anyhow, uh, the reason I brought that up is because we're going to talk about some things today that are uh, that are absolutely uh, asking for some changes in the sport. And uh, I I don't know how dramatic the title is. I put the next tennis boom will depend on symmetry and uh, symmetry of 
the sport, the movement in the sport. And uh, the lead-in I, I put basically about our sport is in the transitional phase in many, many ways. There's, you've heard me over and over and over again over the past 10 years just really talk uh, negatively about the scoring system changes, abbreviated scoring, hybrid scorings, and all these things that are bastardizing our sport and how damaging they are. And I've talked somewhat about the symmetry, but um, I want to, you know, I, I ask here, is symmetry between the ball striking and the movement on the court has been lost? Can we regain it? I've addressed this somewhat on um, programs about the sleeping giants of American tennis, uh, one of them being our older people, or over 60, our senior citizens. And I've always started by saying the game is too dang fast for the senior citizens because most of them are using high-tech rackets that allow them to hit the ball more effortlessly and harder but the symmetry of the ball striking is has overcome the movement. And thus saying this, I've used the analogy that it's like trying to dance a waltz to disco music. Uh, it doesn't fit. It, it's, it's very much out of sync. Uh, the problem with a lot of the sports now and the hybridization of them, whether it's arena football, uh, whether it is, oh gosh, NBA basketball. I, folks, I grew up in Indiana and loved basketball so so much. I would watch any basketball game, and most of the intrigue for me was understanding. I had some great high school coaches: the great John McLeod, the great Bill Green in Indiana, who won like six state championships when they had 600 teams there. But I had these people uh, as great coaches, and they were. Very much the, the intriguing part of basketball was all the different sets and the, the formations and, and the defenses and things like that. And and uh, they when they brought the shot clock in in the three-point play, they brought them in with the excuse that it would be more exciting for the, the fans. And some people like it all right. I absolutely hate what college is tolerable, NBA basketball is awful when you watch it. The symmetry's been lost. It's all athletics, all athleticism, and it, the different sets. Even in college, now they throw the ball in under. They try for a layup, or they throw it back out for a three-pointer, and that's about it. Uh, in the NBA, so I think they've done away with man-to-man uh, -man defense. So therefore, it used to be a, the great players who were great shooters but couldn't play defense didn't make it in the NBA. Now it's all athleticism, and it's very boring, to tell you the truth. It used to be exciting to see somebody get a slam dunk, and now it's extremely boring. Three-pointers are extremely boring, and, and it's, it's, uh, it, it, we've, lost, we've lost something there. And, uh, and I go in baseball, juicing baseball when there's too many home runs. When you champion the week, you weaken the real champions. When you have too many... Exciting moments, nothing is exciting. Uh, excitement dwindles with each occurrence. Drama intensifies with each denial. As I watch the Australian Open right now, I um, absolutely love the drama part of a fourth set when someone's up two sets to one and trying to close it out and the drama of trying to serve out a long game and, and those things. The scoring system of tennis it is the drama. It's the, it's the first you have it, then you don't. And the long, the long games that break a player down or make a, or make a player great. The long games either break a player down or make a player great. It's, uh, it's just awful what we've done to cheapen our sport with the shortened scoring systems. Y'all, everybody understands where where I'm going with this, but uh, I want to make a point about the symmetry and and uh, see if we can go from there. But so about 80% of my practices, and I've I've got to be one of the luckiest people in the world. So for 44 years, I've been able to work with or coach uh, collegiate teams, and then another seven years, 51 years total, I've been able to look at this sport of tennis. 
and try as I may to figure out the little nuances and the, the, the things that make all the difference between good and great, average and good, and and uh, why players with great ball striking never surface and why some players surface uh, with average ball striking. Uh, the, the game is incredibly deep as we get into it, as as all of you know. It's an incredibly deep game. and But as I'm coaching my college team now, about 80% of my time now has been spent on trying to figure out, trying to figure out how the players stop making stupid mistakes and how to get them to not beat themselves and how to get them basically not to miss as much as they do. Um, And um, if you're taking a player from, say, 0 to the 100th percentile, players, the ball striking you know, is is different until about the 60th percentile. But then from the 60th to the 90th percentile, we have a huge group of people that pretty much the ball striking is all the same. We have, uh, I've always used this analogy about the ball striking versus your ability to compete. Now, from the 60th to 90th percentile, the ball striking is all about the same, although the 90th percentile people win a lot more and the 60% people do not. And as a coach, you're always trying to figure out, well, why is my 60% percentile guy not winning and this guy who's not striking the ball better than he is or she is is not winning? Now, the last 10% of the players, yeah, there's a difference. You know, there's a subtle differences between the very, very top players, the top 10 percentile. But there's... As uh, my players argue about this in the van, if, if they got to play against Nadal or Federer, you know, would they get games and this type of thing? And it's it's really funny how they now talk about UTRs like that is some some golden rule that players with higher UTRs are just better ball strikers, and players with less UTRs are not, and and all this, but it. It's really, it's really just fascinating to listen to them talk uh, about their un- not understanding that the best college players strike the ball as well as most of the pros, except for the top 70 in the world. Any college player, let's say in the top 50 to 100, strikes the ball just as well. But the analogy I always use with them is I say, look, your tennis game is like building a race car in a garage and you do everything right and you've got and end up with an Indianapolis race car that has the potential to win any race. So on the tennis court that's what in practice court this is what you do. It's like building a great car in the garage. Then you have as the driver have to be able to take that race car out and you have to learn how to drive on small roads with no traffic, then on city streets with more traffic, then on an interstate highway with a lot more traffic, then to maybe race uh, dirt track races or smaller races, and it takes a lot of steps to get to the Indianapolis 500 with that great race car. Even, folks, listen to this. Even if you've got the best forehand in the world in practice, even if you've got this great supersonic serve, even if you're in tremendous fitness, in tremendous condition, you will wreck that race car. You will fail at a high, high level until you get necessary reps in for your psyche, for your mental state, and for your emotional state. You will not know how to drive that car. Some people learn how to drive and use their skills faster than others. Some do not. So the talent matters. Sure, it matters for the ball striking. It allows you to maybe race in a better race, uh, a higher level race one day. But unless you learn step by step and take care of all those steps, 
It's not about a supersonic serve or a new hybrid racket or something like that. You have to learn how to play the game of tennis the way, and, and it's a, such an intriguing game. If you use traditional scoring, it becomes like a chess match. There, if you watch the Australian Open now, you will see that always the match is won way before the end of the match. Usually, there's one or two games that we call war zones that a player will break down another player. And the one player separates themselves, just like a long marathon race. It is not all about just ball striking and one point here and one point there. So I've been spending, I have been spending 90% of my time as a coach, 80 or 90% of the time, trying to figure out how to get my players to improve faster. I've just had uh, Coach uh, Weber, I think, has just checked on the phone on the, uh, I think that's his number, but I'll be bringing on this guest or Coach Weber here in a minute or two. But but here here is the point that I wanted to make. You Each player has to go through a progression. <clears throat> and I went around the other day and asked my players, and you can ask, if you're a coach, you can ask your players what, how long have they played? So I have a player on my team who's played 11 years, another player 11 years. One player has played 16 years, okay, since the time they picked up a racket. And one player actually is on the travel team, only started four years ago, and he has just a, got a great disposition for the game, and he's got a great knack for competition. So he's been playing four years. So I ask all the players, well, my golly, that's, way longer than many of these players that have already been on the pro tour. So are we slow learners? Are we not progressing? At a, are we working on the wrong thing? Are we just not talent? I said players don't run out of talent. They usually run out of understanding mentally and emotionally how to use the tools they have. So how do we hybrid this instead of practicing the same way over and over and over again? But 80% of what I'm doing now is I'm trying to figure out how to use this high-tech equipment we have where the ball moves faster than the movement. Vic Braden came to College Park, Maryland when I used to work up there, and Vic Braden had the statistics. He said in the days of the wood racket, for a ball to go across the net and back, it was nearly four seconds, 3.9. And his statistic on high-tech rackets now is 2.1. So everything's moving twice as fast. If you watched uh, Coach Weber, if Coach Weber's coming on here, he sent me a great video of Jimmy Connors playing those greatest Jimmy Connors points ever, and he had the old T2000 wood racket. The symmetry of the movement, Rod Laver, Ken Rosewall, all these players that played with with wood rackets or, or non, non-high-tech rackets, the symmetry of their movement and their ball striking was beautiful. It was absolutely beautiful, and the points themselves brought drama and suspense to everything. The high-tech rackets, in the, in the, if I hear one more time, serve plus one or first strike tennis and these things, it, I, I'd really get upset with the players because they try to imitate that stuff and they never learn the penultimate thinking. Okay, so penultimate thinking. Penultimate means next to the last. Great players are always constructing points next to the last shot. Next, to, Even when you're bouncing a ball over the fence, a good player is looking for the ball to come back. Everything is penultimate thinking. So I, I, the brief, quick history, and I'll bring Coach Weber on here, but the very brief, quick history, everyone has to understand about 1980 when the high-tech rackets came in, the Prince rackets, from eight, 1980 to 1990, nobody knew how to use them. Everybody was still teaching square stances, um, very old wood racket technique, and so the symmetry pretty much stayed the same. You got a little bit of an advantage on return of serve, I think, more than anything. So not really on a serve, not as far as speed, but it was just more forgiving on volleys. 
but but about somewhere around 1990 to 95, people started talking about the first strike tennis because the players started learning how to gain control of the first two balls. And then tennis, I remember, got very, very boring for me as a coach. It was bam, bam, bam. I go, oh, boy, here we go. Three-point shots and slam dunk. There's not going to be any strategy left. I went and saw the great Tut Bartson, who's passed away now, but at TCU. I talked to him actually out at at Kalamazoo one year, and I said, what do you look for? He said he would use dead balls a lot at practice to get players to have more symmetry. They'd be able to learn how to keep the ball in the court. I said, okay, that got me thinking a lot about that. And then, of course, uh, Paul Wardlaw with his great directionals teaching, he uh, had sent me a letter and said he had written my first book about, he saw where I talked about changing direction versus not changing direction. And he introduced me to his directionals, and people have used those now for years. And that has helped but also the movement, the lower body kinetics movement. Now the three, one, three or five step movement. A guy named Jeff Moore, I think, was coaching it. I'll give him credit. I heard him talking one time. Um, he was coaching women at the University of Texas about every ball you can get to one, three or five steps, and that's really helped. So what I'm saying, after 1990, people learned how to move better on the tennis court. And so the symmetry, if you learn how to move when you were younger, the symmetry came back a lot, but not for the old people, not for the old people who had been using the wood rackets. So really the decline started when the technology, the ball striking, started overcoming the movement. What happened was you have three things. You have the ball, the court, and the racket. And I hated high-tech rackets because I saw that things became more easy to pick up but easy to put down as well. I saw people not be in love with the dopamine rush that they used to get from this ball striking. I saw kids immediately they didn't go back to the they didn't go to the backboard anymore. Uh, I'm going to bring in this. I think this is Coach Weber. Hello, is this Coach Weber or hello? Is Coach Creasy it's on the? It's Coach Weber. I hear. It's Coach Weber. I've been coaching. Coach Weber. That. I've been coaching. Yes, it is. No, this isn't. It's, I, I think this is someone else. Who's this, please? Hello. My name's Billy. My name's Billy. Hi, I've Coach. Been we've been playing. I've been. We've been. We've been playing tennis in Alabama. For forty years, right there, mostly on the side of a mountain there, but but all the ball striking stuff that I believe is wrong. I don't believe that's accurate right there that we're talking about right now because we're talking about okay. twenty twenty two, and the dynamic of the ball is different, and it's not okay. the same that it used to be. So you don't have to swing quite the same way. That's why women players are doing such wonderful jobs there. Because it is different, and it's balls faster, right? You can keep, you can hit it high, on, and the racket is different. Right. So all the 1960s technology and the language is stupid, and it's wasted time. That's all I'm going to say. That's what I say. Right no, no, I, I, I love hearing that, and I 100% agree. I 100% agree, Coach that it helped women's tennis because women's tennis the uh, shoes, it, it brought the ball striking the up. Tighter, everything's different. So if you if you if you try to apply those same set of circumstances that you did in the sixties and even the seventies, right? Even the seventies and you try to apply them now, it's 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 math that's wrong, right? Today's style is faster, the athletes are better, everything's better, everything's different. So you gotta throw everything out the window, man, and you gotta watch a little bit and you gotta watch these players and watch them use this equipment now and you have to adjust to that. So anybody that is come even from the two thousands, right? Even from then, uh, it's wrong. The, the, everything is okay. wrong. You have to use your eye, and you actually have to watch and adjust them. 
And I think a lot of these old coaches don't do it. I think they don't okay. do it, and they, they stick to their old ways. So that's what I say. No, I appreciate that. So you believe that today's tennis, you think uh, it's – okay, I, I look, younger people are picking this up and playing, but would you agree with me that the younger players miss more balls than they've ever missed? The ball striking is great, but they miss a lot of balls. Yeah. No, I do. Would you agree? I do. But yeah. Here's, yeah. Here's, here's why. Here's why. Here's why they – so, yes, they miss more balls. But why do they miss more balls? So don't you can't end the thought with, with they miss more balls, right? Yes, they do. Why? They're faster and they're in much more sharper angles than they okay. ever were. Well, why is that? So that's what is really to examine is how come somebody can hit a ball like that where these kids are missing these balls like they never, you know, that's why it is. It's not old coaching techniques and all that nonsense. It really isn't. It really isn't. It's really understanding what we have here in tennis today. Today, all the stuff that makes up tennis today. Why did that per- Why is that person able to hit a ball like that over and over? Not not that particular person, but over and over. You know, person, person, person. You know, why can they do that? Why can they do that? They can do that for X reasons, right? Those are the things to examine. So I think we're right. looking at the wrong stuff, man. What would you I do, do, Coach, with um, what would you do with senior citizens, getting them back into tennis instead of playing pickleball? Can you explain that phenomenon a little bit? What do, what's your thoughts on that? Absolutely not. Keep them playing pickleball. There's no way. So you you don't you don't think yeah. that you don't think they should no. come back and play tennis? No, they'll get hurt. Okay. They'll get a ball in the eye or something. They're <laughs> in the ball seat. They grab boom right there in the ball seat. That'll cost okay. two thousand dollars. Yeah, well, I thing. listen. I uh, I agree with you. Get hurt now. Pull. Hey, listen. I I'd get pulled muscles. I'd get a I'd get a pulled uh, hamstring in a hurry. If I had to play full speed tennis right right now, what would you think, Coach? Okay, would you agree that the racket, the ball, and the court are the three the three dimensions there now? When they change the 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 uh, racket, you missed one. You missed no. You missed one. The what's the fourth? You missed one. The athlete. You missed one. The athlete. Okay. So I, well, we still have a general court. public. Maybe we have better athletes now. Everything that's sort of a subjective thing, you know. But you have to be a better athlete to cover the court. But with the dimensions, not the the the, the physical dimensions of the sport is the ball, the racket, and the court. What would you think? And I do this at practices all the time. If you made the court, let's say more narrow, more narrow. It's a racket. You know it's a racket. Okay. Well, if you add add a more narrow court, let's say instead of 27 feet wide, let's say you make it 23 feet wide, and let's put the net up to 3 foot 9 instead of 3 foot 6 and make it all the way across. Make the net higher. Would that slow the game down a little bit and make the rallies longer? Because you can't, Coach, women's tennis is – excuse me, Coach. Why? And why? Yes. It, okay. Yes, it L- longer it, points. More longer points. Why? Longer points. So more interesting points. Yeah, so what? There's no. Then there's no reference point to history. Okay. Right? So All right. the fact that we're right. getting how about how would you, how about uh, smaller people now who have good hand-eye coordination to try to play? Schwartzman is really. Are you talking about midget? Midget. Small, smaller people. No, I'm not. I'm just talking about people who are five foot eight. Okay, Rod Laver, Ken Rosewall, Schwartzman. These smaller guys, with the way tennis is being played now, they pretty it pretty much eliminates that population, doesn't it? The way the ball the no, the no, ball no. travels it, so it, fast. That, that's, no, not really, man. That's a really hard math calculation, right? So you can't shrink people. Right, the court the court's going to be the same. And why do you okay. think the the taller players have succeeded lately? Why do you think well, that is? Well, they, they have. There's, well, there's a physics ahead, reason coach. for that, 
right? Yep. There's a physics yep. reason. It's physics, man. Okay. They can hit the ball harder. They can reach more. They can, you know, can go side right. to side more if they're fast, right? So the right. smaller person, given the same size court, you know, no, nonsense. Well, uh, how about would you agree we need smaller people in the court? Are we do we want to limit tennis to only people who are six two and above, and can hit the ball hard? Do we want to limit tennis to that in one style no. of game? Why, why would we do that? I'd love to see a seven footer. You know, but they can't they can't travel side to side. So you know, it doesn't right. Matter. Well, small people so can't travel up and back. Small people can't come into the net. Right, uh, you're, right. That's exactly right. A seven-footer can't do okay. that. They just can't travel as fast, right? Well, so, and I got an idea. As, the dynamics of the court are, right, there, there is a, a very particular kind of athletic um, human being uh, size. And it sounds weird to say that, but it, it's true. And it's cool to see taller guys kind of and women kind of exceed. Uh, no, man, okay. it's not interesting. Why would you do that? Well, I would like to have everybody, every, all kinds of athletes represented. We used to have all kinds of different tall players, short players, smaller players. All of them we could succeed, do. but we're pretty we much limiting do. the population. Hey, let me ask you this, we Coach. Okay, uh, what would you think for older players? Okay, they tried, they, st- they started this green ball deal for kids under 10 or 11 or 12, they started this green ball deal so that basically the ball would travel slower and they would have a chance to pick up the game with good strokes. What would you think if we started using that a slower ball instead instead of going to wood rackets or something or changing the court size, what if they just made a slower ball as well for senior citizens? Do you think that would bring people okay. back? Who would care about that? I think that we need a faster ball for the w, the, the, the professional players. Who cares what a senior citizen wobbling around in their wheelchair or whatever, whatever they're doing? Who cares? You know, yeah. Yeah, give them a basketball. I don't care. I don't care what they hit, right? It doesn't matter, yeah. right? But the regular folks, the professionals that we like to watch on TV, how about we concentrate on that ball? And maybe that's a red ball, you know, or that that one is a little <laughs> bit faster, man. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyhow, those are great. I, you know, Coach, I love hearing your ideas, and I really appreciate you tuning in to our program. And uh, so you you you're still coach. How many years you've been coaching? Thirty years, and uh, almost all unsuccessfully. Really. Well, no. If well. you've touched a, if you've helped, if you've helped youngsters. You've been a big success. Your posterity will always be important, regardless of your prosperity. You know, so you know. Thanks very, very much for the coaching, but thanks for tuning in. And I, I love that you have your points of view and have brought them forward. And uh, I'm going to con- try to continue on the program. And but we re- absolutely respect and, and th- I want to thank you for coming on, Coach. Okay, so that's. Coach from uh, Alabama over there, and, and that's we, we love that. I love to hear different points of view from some different coaches. Um, I have, you know, my beliefs in different sets of values, maybe for how the game should be played. Well, tennis, just like we need a lot of different players playing, we need a lot of different points of view. I do want to go after the senior citizens part a little bit here. I think we do need to rescue some of the people back from pickleball. Uh, I don't like pickleball. I, uh, one of my former um, colleagues and a, and a great coach, uh, I guess he wouldn't even would never mind if I told uh, J.W. Eisenhower up at NC State, one of the greatest coaches of all time, coaches John Sadry and a lot of championship teams and just a great coach. When he saw the thing about pickleball, he said, well, that'd be like, having our PGA players, our great golfers, playing miniature golf or putt-putt and calling it the same. He said, that will not last. And I said, I don't know, Coach. I think the symmetry of pickleball works for senior citizens. The symmetry of regular tennis 
with these high-tech rackets and a fastball does not work. The ball striking over has overcome the movement. I know for myself, I wasn't kidding when I said I'd, I'd probably pull a hamstring muscle if I tried to play singles now. I can play doubles and cover half the court. I think Ed Crass's one-on-one doubles uh, is, is fantastic because it, you can play singles like you play doubles and you use half the court. And I think that's good for senior citizens, but for, um, you know, the, I, I just believe that for singles, it's uh, used a whole court and there's not enough time. So I wanted to move on here. I got to have to do a quick commercial and then I will be right back. And I, I want to talk a little bit about kids growing up and what really hooks them on tennis is not the winning or the losing. What really hooks them on tennis is the dopamine rush from the brain. And this Coach Chuck Creasy. I wanted to remind you that my book, Coaching Tennis, is still out, and you can get it on Amazon. Total Tennis Training has been rejuvenated or reborn, and it has been rated the number seven bestseller of all coaching tennis books ever written. And, and Coaching Tennis and Total Tennis Training, number seven, and Coaching Tennis, number three of all time. Look on Amazon and get Coaching Tennis by Chuck Creasy. That's K-R-I-E-S-E. And, folks, it's much more than just hitting a tennis ball. You'll learn the physical, the mental, and the emotional strategies and probably the only place in the world where momentum control tactics have been written. But Coaching Tennis by Chuck Creasy and Total Tennis Training. And I wanted to talk just a little bit about some uh, another another thing about how we could have a rebirth in our game. Again, the symmetry is a huge thing. My quick idea here on senior tennis, I wanted to wrap that up. Senior tennis players, look, we need a slower-moving ball. They're not going to change the high-tech rackets. Uh, the tennis industry have too much control over our governing body right now, and they're going to amp whatever the next supersonic boron uh, fiberglass, whatever they make them out of, uh, super-sized rackets uh, are to make it seem easier for you. And it's easy to strike, but it's still really hard to keep the ball in the court. And I think for youngsters, uh, those high-tech rackets do more damage than you can imagine. I, With youngsters, I use the old 85-inch rackets or even a wood racket to start out sometime. Or I, I absolutely have my daughter right now. She plays with a the old uh, pro staff, Wilson pro staff, the old Pete Sampras racket in it. And it uh, it's made her strokes very clean. Their strokes are very clean. There's and it, it's worked out quite well. But that's my thought on the rackets. And but the manufacturers not going to go back and do that. The manufacturers are going to go with the next hot item, and they're going to get them, us to buy them. And then we go to the tennis court. And for your senior citizens, the game is just moves too fast for us to have an enjoyable experience unless we play doubles and we play on clay or something. But uh, so they're not going to use wood rackets. But how about this? We need a we need a ball called the gold standard or the gold not the golden age. How about the gold standard or something like that? And it could be similar to the green ball. But listen to the psychology that green ball that <clears throat> was put out for young people to practice with. It is a good, it's a great teaching tool, but they ran into problems when they jammed it, forced it down everybody's throat, 
and you had to play this green dot ball uh, sport, and you, then you had to do the um, the orange ball at a certain level, and people are going, come on, are you kidding me? That's like learning to play basketball on a four-foot goal, then an eight-foot goal, then a ten-foot goal, finally. It's not a bad teaching tool, but it is not what really accelerates the learning. Um, what what needs to happen with senior citizens? A senior citizen, if I have an eight-foot goal and a ten-foot basketball goal, and they're side by side, and I played basketball all through my youth, there's no way in the world I'm shooting an eight-foot goal because it's easier. I'm going to shoot it to ten-foot goal and be challenged by it. What used to be my 17-foot bag shot uh, that that I could make all the time has now become a 7-foot bank shot. Okay, that's all right, but I don't want to play with a, a kiddie goal, and I don't want to play with a kiddie ball. I want to play with the real thing, and that's where we've messed up, but we maybe need a gold standard ball. And I, uh, our coach who was on earlier, um, you know, I think we could maybe – I, I don't know, but there's the ball, there's the court, there's the net, there's the court, which is the dimensions and the net, there's the racket, and there's the ball. The, the racket went high-tech, the ball stayed the same, the court stayed the same. I don't know, maybe we could have a higher net all the way across, maybe three foot six all the way across. Um, but the long and the short of it has become uh, – you know, smash mouth tennis and um, the symmetry has been lost. I I know that um, maybe younger people can play it. I sure can anymore. So I wanted to talk, though, a little bit here about the dopamine rush. Um, watched a movie this last week, The Social Dilemma. And if you, most of you may have seen this. But basically, I, I I just hated watching it because I didn't want to think about high tech stuff and things um, <laughs> during the season. And but the dopamine of our ch- children is being hijacked, according to this movie. The dopamine rush to the brain with the cell phones. Well, I have mentioned often that on our on this radio program that I played tennis as a youngster for three reasons the dopamine, the adrenaline, and endorphins that I got from the game. Winning was important. I've always liked winning. Always hated losing. But the dopamine rush, the adrenaline of competing, and the endorphins from being in shape, that dopamine rush that you feel when you hit a jump shot or hit a great uh, wood bat, uh, wood bats, aluminum bats. Oh, boy, I can go on forever about how the manufacturers have screwed up our sports. But the, 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 what you feel when and that, hear that crack of the bat, uh, I mean, uh, okay, Ben Hogan, Persimmon Woods, I've played with for a lot of years. And uh, I love the feel. I'd rather hit a 200-yard drive with a Ben Hogan, Persimmon Wood, hit it on the screws, than a 240-yard drive where technology allowed me to do that. So, but here's the point. The dopamine rush is important. If our youngsters are not getting that same dopamine rush when they hit the ball, they're not going to do it repetitively. They're not going to do it over and over and over again. And I can say in 1980, 81, 82, right in there, players that I was coaching stopped going to the backboard. They they no longer went to the backboard for hours and hit on the wall searching for the sweet spot. It was like overnight. And if you put a wood racket in a youngster's hand and say hit on the backboard, they will become addicted to doing it. They will be looking for the dopamine rush. Well, that, that is an absolute fact as far as 51 years of coaching. I'll tell you that the that dopamine rush and wanting to do it again and again is really matters. Whether it's you're on a driving range and you're hunting for the sweet spot on that golf club, or whether you're in a batting cage and looking for the sweet spot on that bat, or whether you're shooting a jump shot and you're you're looking to hear that beautiful swish sound as the ball goes through, that dopamine rush is is a great great thing and that keeps people coming back. 
And I, when when I talked about our players missing so many balls and not learning how to keep the ball in play, the gentleman, the coach who just called me, um, you know, he talked about errors versus non-errors. And a lot of people think it's, hey, hit more winners, it's more exciting. But if you've been in coaching for a while, you understand that winners feel like two and they only count one when you advance, you know, you have – you hit. You can hit a winner physically, but errors count two. They only feel like one, but they really count two. That's a very important statement. Players who do not beat themselves are very, 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 very hard to beat. But the player who tries to beat you if you don't beat yourself has to almost play perfectly. But most players do not understand that, that if you're up 30-15, our sport is a game of double jeopardy. If you are up 30-15 and you miss a ball on top of the net, well, the score should have been 40-15 instead it's 30-all. That's a two-point swing. That is absolutely a two-point swing. And we have the only sport that has simultaneous offense and defense other than probably boxing um, or racquetball or something like this. Racquetball, we keep score by ones. If I miss, the other player gets the point. And uh, in other sports, we have an offense and a defense. So a coach the other day asked me, he says, why do you dislike no-ad scoring so much? I said, well, it's very simple on the surface to see that the game point is an eight-point swing. And he said, well, eight-point swing? I said, yeah. I said, it's very easy to see at four to four when somebody – makes an unforced error and misses a ball or in college we have that silly let cord rule that if the ball hits the net and comes over it's an eight point swing because the person who goes up five four only needs four more the person who just lost the game needs 12 more now that happens at every level if you're up two to one it either becomes two two or three to one it becomes an eight point swing if you're zero to zero and a person gets a, a, a lucky shot, or unfortunately, uh, lots of shots are taken. Uh, I, I hate to, I don't want this old different topic, folks, but the cheating is unbelievable in college tennis and junior tennis because when you use no ad scoring, it is an eight-point swing on game point. I want to write an article. I'm getting off track here a little bit, but I want to write an article say the, called The Art of the Line Call. What do you all think about this? The Art of the Line Call. And this is completely, completely uh, satirical or what I just, um, just uh, what, what, what is the term in English? Uh, it is a, um, an example, a false metaphor or that, I can either teach my players for years and weeks and weeks and weeks to learn how to do a slice backhand so they can keep the ball on the court and work really, really hard to get eight points up or get the extra game up. Or they can just simple take a line call. Or when the other person takes a line call, you you know, you take a line call first. Now how bad is that if we're going there? If we're going there, I'm thinking about doing a, a, a satire on what's easier, what's better. Are there really rules now? Cheaters absolutely do win today in our sport of tennis. Cheaters win. It's that simple. I hate to tell you that, but cheaters win. If you cheat well on game point, you win. And But when, it, you know, I've always said you're in the process of winning or losing every day of your life and has very little to do with the winner or loss. Absolutely, we don't want to cheat. When you cheat, there is no honor in that. When you don't win the fair square away, there's no honor in that. But what about losing against somebody that cheats your pants off? It's happening everywhere. And it's happening because the stakes are so, so very big when you get so much for such a little transaction, all you have to do is make a line call on a serve, then there's an eight-point swing. Players have learned that if they win three no-ad games 
instead of 3-3 three to three and being in a big dogfight, they'll win 6-0. That's how simple it is. And it's just very, very bad that we're not teaching our players to honor and respect and love the game more. I'm sorry Coach Weber didn't come on. I wanted to talk a lot about the code. For years and years, we, it was very simple. We played by the code. It was an honor code. It was a, it was a historical code and, and something that we had used for years and years and years in tennis that made the game a great gentleman's game and a, a, or a gentlewoman's game, if you want to say. But it's, it was a great game that you honored and you were honored, you were proud to be a part of, but you would never do something to bring dishonor to it. Now the winning and the losing has taken a precedent. The no-ad scoring has made it to where we have random results. The player who should win and has done all the work and maybe the better player can easily lose in this format when you have no-ad scoring. And then you add high-tech rackets and big serve, two big shots. A player can go from being the lesser player with two big shots. They don't even have to learn how to play the game of tennis. So, I yes, I've been in the game since 1963, and that's nearly, nearly 60 years. Nearly 60 years I've been in this den, 59 years. I absolutely love it, and I... I'm disgusted with some of the things that happen, but I want to move on here to the, to the coaching. So Coach Weber uh, had sent me a uh, video of Jimmy Connors playing and the top best uh, shots that, that he had ever made and best points, the best points he'd ever played. is really very, very interesting. Um, I will watch the Australian Openers, one of the big opens now, uh, because usually there's great drama and there's so much on the line that there's still a tremendous, tremendous battle uh, that, that is being staged. It was, it's not just the athleticism of the athletes, but it's the drama. I watched the whole first set of the Cressy kid, Maxime Cressy and, and Nadal. Just, and it was short tennis because of the way Cressy was playing but those were two absolutely contrasting styles, and it was quite interesting to to see the little bit of flow. There was pressure shifts, and uh, that first set, and then I didn't get to watch even who won. I'm, I told my uh, wife, now, the folks, this is a prediction, but I've seen a lot of tennis. Did that Nadal won seven six, probably six three six two or something. That's what it looked like. Now I might be wrong. Maybe Cressy came back and won. And if I do, if if he did, fine. But I've seen a lot of matches, and I've seen a lot of seven six six one type matches, seven six six three six two type matches. One player gets their heart broken, the other person gets the momentum, and Nadal is very comfortable with leading. I've even getting back to missing balls or making balls. I'm even uh, have been to the place where I've I've told my guys, uh, my team. If I had, I, if you're when you're playing tennis, you can teach your youngsters nothing wide or nothing in the net. If they miss, they have to miss long. That's a critical, critical thing. With that, with that, you you you, you your players need to understand that wider in the net is something they can control. That is a mental error. Long is a physical error. You cannot. You can forgive physical errors but wide or in the net is almost always a mental error uh they're pressing they're trying to go for too much they hit around the opponent instead of constructing the point so i've often thought if i only had i don't want this taken in the wrong way but some kind of a a shocker on their leg or something like you do it with your dogs you know you have have your yard you have that shock collar on them but the players, if they would get negative feedback when they missed with these high-tech rackets, they'll slap a ball and they go, oh, I just missed in the net, or oh, I missed wide. And they really, it's really hard to get them to change to where they'll use bigger margins. 
But if you want to win in tennis, you have to learn to use bigger margins. Missing long is acceptable. There's a bigger thing that I've been trying to figure out, and that's how in the world do I get the players to have a little bit of a dopamine rush when they hit a, a ball in the court? And if it's, let's say, if it's deeper, it's a deep ball and well-placed, they get a really a good dopamine rush like you would with making a basket. No matter whether you shot it with good form or bad form, you get a dopamine rush from making the basket. With the tennis, the players get the dopamine rush, or they used to, off of the racket, but not really they 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 play with the line they don't understand the value of making balls you have to make balls and not beat yourself so with that with that i i want to you know to cut down your errors i'm going to give you the tip now the the tip that is a 100 year old tip almost um from the book Match Play and the Spin of the Ball by Bill Tilden it was written written in the 1920s I read that book years ago, and the most brilliant part of it, that is, it's subtle, it seems unimportant, but the most brilliant part of that book is he starts out the book in one of the first chapters, and he goes, there are four variables, okay? There's, well, there's two variables. You either keep the spin, or excuse me, you either keep direction or change direction. You either keep the spin or you change, reverse the spin of the ball. And he said that's what determines almost all errors. And uh, so I want you to, next time you go out and play tennis, try this one. I only got a couple minutes. I'm going to explain this quickly. But when you're hitting slice back, whenever somebody hits to your backhand, no matter whether it's a slice or a topspin, it's always going to roll with topspin towards you. If you had a slice back where it came from, you kept direction of the ball, but you kept the spin of the ball. That is the easiest. So when people are not at a good slice backhand, it's easy to control a slice back cross court all day long. It's easy to learn how to control. Teach your youngsters how to keep spin and keep direction. Now the second thing, second easiest would be to keep direction, but change the spin. That means you're going back where the ball came from but you're hitting over the ball, but you do have to reverse the spin of the ball. That would be number two. Um, number two, I don't want to say easiest, number two, most consistent. Now, if you're changing direction of the ball, if you change from a cross court to a slice, a cross court to a slice down the line, it sounds like it's really hard, but you sort of can use the slice of the ball to not change the slice of the ball and go down the line. Now, this is not a good tactic because you open up court with a weak ball. You used to be able to do that all the time, and it doesn't work now. The hardest shot to do is change a cross court to a down the line. We all know that because you're changing the direction of the ball, the spin of the ball over the high part of the net into the small part of the court into his in Paul Wardlaw what he calls an inside angle, an inside an inside angle, an inside angle. So, I want you. Uh, we need to honor the game. We need to. We need to absolutely, folks, to protect the history and the heritage of our great sport, our great game. All of us are in this. And uh, the coach came on. Thank you for your ideas, coach. Uh, but remember, we need everybody playing tennis. We need men and we need women. We need young. We need great athletes, not so great athletes. We need older people to all be able to play this great game. I want you to think about what we're doing. And maybe it's as simple as if we could get the symmetry, the symmetry of the, the ball striking with the movement pretty much the same and go back to dancing the waltz with waltz music now if you can play disco music and dance disco fine or if you can you know rap music and dance the rap whatever however that you would dance to that oh that's great if you want to dance faster to faster music if you can that's fine but i think that for the people who play we need to keep the music and the damp steps in tune and 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 uh, in uh, in sync. 
So we have a lot to talk about, and I want to thank you all for being on the program uh, and listening today. This is Coach Chuck Creasy. I wanted to remind you that you are in the process of winning or losing every day of your life, and it has very little to do with a win or a loss. Let's bring back American tennis and make it more powerful than any other country's tennis in the whole world. I didn't mean powerful now by hitting bigger. I mean by let's all get behind it and see what we can do to wake up those sleeping giants out there. We'll see you next week on American Tennis, and this is Coach Chuck Greasy. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.